0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Curator's Choice. As I'm sure you can tell, this is not Ayla speaking to you. My name's Dakota, and unfortunately, Ayla is pretty sick with the flu and has lost her voice. So I'm here to do a quick introduction for you instead. I'll keep it pretty brief. Today, for the second installment of the three-part series at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, Virginia, Ayla is speaking with Anna Edwards. They go into detail about a house with many names, though probably best known as the White House of the Confederacy. Also, they'll talk about the life of the Davis family during the Civil War. As always, you can see images from today's episode by going to www.curatorschoicepodcast.com and check things out on Facebook and Instagram. One particular note Ayla wanted me to share with you today is that during this episode, you actually hear the podcast's namesake mentioned by Anna, who unknowingly became the first person to use it in a podcast. Ayla was extremely excited about it, so look out for it while listening. Also, next week, Ayla is planning on debuting the Patreon, so look for an announcement soon. Thanks, everyone, and let's get started.
1: Okay, and your, what's your technical job title?
0: What is my title now?
1: <laughs> this is what I've learned from a lot of people who work in museums. You guys do every, a little bit of everything.
2: We do, and... Um... I'm also literally in the middle
1: of shifting from
2: one job. So I've been visitor engagement interpretation. Now I'm shifting to uh, interim um, education programs manager.
1: Okay. So, yeah. I mean, that'll be an exciting oh, shift, it's great. though.
2: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're be working mostly with um, the team that does um, public school education programs. Very cool. Both at schools and on-site. Do you guys get a lot of field trips to come here, I imagine? Yeah, I think it's the bread and butter of all museums (laughs) anyway, but yes. This is true. (laughs) (laughs) That's what keeps the the history alive is the young people coming in. It
1: is, it is, it is, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> You're transitioning into this new, this new position now. Mm-hmm. Um, what, did, what originally brought you to this to museum? museum? Was that your original position?
2: No, my original position was just, um, well, two, still it was two parts. But the very first position was um, I was a fellow, a research fellow, because I was in the VCU uh, graduate history program.
1: Okay. So
2: yeah, 2016, I decided it was time to go back to school and get that master's degree that mm-hmm. I didn't get 30 years before. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, from 2016 till uh, I finished in 2020, but in 2017 I started it. Basically, a research fellowship that led to the Southern Ambitions exhibit. Okay. So it was working with Chris. It was part of the two-part
1: grant project to produce those exhibits. So you had are the one, ones...
2: one team for Greenback and one team for Southern Ambitions.
1: Okay. And those are the ones that came from the dissertations. Yes. Right. Okay. Right. Exactly. That's really neat. That's really cool that this yeah. museum does that.
2: Yeah, it was.
1: and we th- I think it was new.
2: Um, and it was it was specifically, I'm not sure who initiated the grant project, but it was with the University of Richmond. So both the scholars came out of that program and was like, okay, the Now Center said these two guys. So took their work and turned them into that. Yeah, it, perfect. Was, it really was. It was a good immersion for somebody new to sort of the museum part of it.
1: Yeah. And it seemed, sounds like you were relatively new to the Richmond area at that time as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've been here since 88. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Mm-hmm. So you already knew what was going on. <laughs> I,
2: yeah, I think half the time I think I'm in in this world and invited into this world because I now have about 20 years' experience in the politics, public history, urban planning, social justice, mm. all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I was I worked in housing, uh, not housing, but homelessness. Okay. Uh, for a few years,
1: You're a jack of all so trades. Kind of. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yes, jack of all trades, Jane of none. <laughs>
1: Well, we learned a little bit yesterday about the history of the Tredegar, right? Mm -hmm. The ironworks and then this building now, but we really didn't talk much about the White House of the Confederacy or the Confederate White House. Yeah, or the Confederate President's
2: House or the House on Clay Street or Broken Bros House or the Crenshaw House. So so
1: literally any name you can think of. Um, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully you can shed a little bit of light on what that part of it is. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah.
2: I mean, it's literally the opening of our tour is to talk about the origins of the building and. How it came to being in the context for it too and that's one of the things that i like to do when i'm talking to my group is to say all right where you are standing you know is on this plot of property that was purchased by dr john brokenbro and his wife in order to build this house uh, in this part of the neighborhood they already had a house in the neighborhood two blocks away actually Mm. may have been slightly bigger but for whatever reason, they, they wanted to build this house. And it took about two years to do it. They completed it in 1818. And it was a two-story house. And it sat at the edge of the hill at the end of Clay Street. And even in 1818, it was still Clay Street. Um, I like to tell people that they are literally standing on the same street grid that existed uh, in the late 18th century. So when, this, when that neighborhood was laid out, it was laid out as an urban neighborhood. So this house is a sort of uh, there's only one there's only two houses on that stretch of Clay Street that reflect that early what we call early National period. And it's that house in the Wickham House, which is a part of the Valentine Museum. So they're both these gray stucco buildings, right? And they um, if you go into the Wickham House, they interpret it for that early national period. so very, very early 19th century. This house, the White House of the Confederacy, um, is interpreted to represent that specific four-year period when the Davises lived there. And so that means, as we go through telling the whole history, it reflects the um, aesthetic and the work that was done on the house just before they moved into it because they were tenants of a fully furnished house that was sold to the city and then leased to the Confederate
1: government. Okay, and why did they build the house in the beginning? You said that they already had another house. Because rich people like to build their next new house. Fair enough. Okay, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I wouldn't know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right, no, I mean, it's, it, it's as mundane as that, right? It's it's, it's literally as ordinary as that. As, they just wanted you know, another one. For, yeah, and I honestly have not studied the Crenshaws in great detail, so their motivation for building this next house. But it's not, none of these are their only houses, and many times for the very, very wealthy, and to a large extent, so John Brokenbroke, was the president of the Bank of Virginia at the moment that they built this house he actually became the president of uh, the bank in 1811 I think that was the year when the uh, theater there's a spectacular theater fire in Richmond that burnt up the theater and about 60 plus people including the former president of the Bank of Virginia and he was working there at the time Um, he ends up getting that position and then working with an architect and a committee to build a memorial on the spot where that theater burned down and so i think by the time this house had been built that church had already been built it's referred to as monumental church and it's still there and it's standing right on broad street so he's obviously a player right he's 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 on the committee to raise the money and organize the architectural work and all that stuff so he's a player in the city and most of the people who live in that neighborhood which by the way is known as court end and court end really kind of refers to the fact that this neighborhood is um sort of uh, the emphasis is that people are living near the capitol building and capitol square so it's like wow. You live in Court End, you know. You're sort okay. of up there. You you live next to John Marshall. You live next to, you know, Wickham was the attorney who defended Aaron Burr at his treason trial. Okay. Right. So there's all kinds of stuff that goes on, yeah. you know, in this area just because of its proximity to the capital. And the capital of Virginia is, you know, for the South as important as Philadelphia or Boston, mm-hmm. you know, to these origin stories of the United States. You know, so it's, yeah, so it's kind of a remarkable thing to think about, you know, so many of the figures that we have studied at various times or come across when we're reading the founding documents or just early documents. We're like, oh, yeah, those famous guys, you know, all the people on the money that we carry in our wallets, right? Mm -hmm. And they all like lived here or showed up here. Has something to do with the session. Yeah, and and just daily life. Like John Marshall used to go to the market, which was just down the hill. You know, just walk down to the market, buy stuff, and go home, right? And so everybody else is obviously doing that same thing. It's a small 18th, 19th century town, and daily life is very manual. Everything has to be done by somebody's hand. Mm -hmm. You know, and so you're living in and amongst all of all of that. Even the super wealthy. In many ways, the great leveler is any disease that runs through, you know, a neighborhood. So there are there are distinct differences in ways of life at the same time that there are these um, shared experiences yeah. on the ground. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: So the house didn't really come to much importance until the Civil War. Yeah. Before then, it was just kind of another fancy house that these guys had built for themselves. Yep. But what what was the turning point, and what was what made them choose this site? What was the most important thing about it?
2: So I think the really, probably the most important thing was that Lewis Crenshaw, who was the man uh, who purchased it in eighteen fifty seven, um, he decided to glam the house up, so it was already a two-story house with a lot of really, you know, fancy features, like it had this colonnade of a back porch that made it look spectacular if you were walking into the neighborhood from the capital areas, and a big old rose garden in the back, so it's, it's kind of wonderful. Um, and then it's also, um, he added a third floor to it, which meant he could um, have more guests uh, in the house. So there was something in the, in the notes about them really wanting to make this house a showpiece in the neighborhood. So when the Civil War starts and when the Davis family arrives in Richmond, because the Confederate government has changed its mind and decided that Richmond is going to be the capital of their operations, so they're, they're moving from Montgomery, Alabama, the Davises have to stay in a hotel because no residence has been identified yet, they don't know where they're going to be staying. Coincidentally, this, the hotel that they, um, that they move into was also built by Lewis Crenshaw. And, uh, this guy is, you know, Crenshaw is one of those guys who's a savvy businessman. He was wealthy before the war, during the war, and after the war. And I believe that family continues to this day. So, um, you know. He knew how to work it. <laughs> he did. He, he clearly did. He and Joseph Reed Anderson, you know, who runs the, the ironworks, um, I'm sure they all knew each other anyway, and of course they were probably doing business together. But same kind of thing. Anderson was smart from the minute he arrived in this place from the 1840s, you know, and then able to send that on down the line in his family as well. So, but again, he manages to make this ironworks survive and thrive before, during, and after the war, which is no mean trick, since he was a Confederate who then had to flip and act like he hadn't been a Confederate,
3: right?
1: This, this might be a little bit of an aside, but I still don't really understand the reason why they did move from Alabama to Richmond. I know that it had a lot to do with, obviously, like the ironworks here, the industrialization mm-hmm. that was present here. Mm-hmm. Was that really the only reason, or was it just more convenient because it was closer to the north?
2: I think it's, it's so the, the idea of, of what that, the fact that Richmond was actually and practically the, the, the industrial center of the south at that time, or at least as a city, it represented the most capacity. And they wanted, by centering their the governmental and military operations here, they are not only protecting it, but they have access to it. So there's shipbuilding that's going on here as well, and really understanding the James River as that super highway mm-hmm.
3: to the world.
2: Mm-hmm. That that's important. I think it's you know I, I again this is not sort of exactly my my arena, but Norfolk. If you if you if they were to move to Norfolk, for example, I think they'd be too vulnerable too quickly. Right, because it's all open to you know, the ocean and the bay and all these different ways of accessing yeah. it. But Richmond is a little bit harder to get to, and the proof is literally in the pudding in that they, it took them four years to actually get here. Mm-hmm. right. And so there was something that they understood about the terrain that made it easy to protect, even though it seems so much closer to DC. Um, and then again, that uh, having the James River at their disposal really does give them a, you know, a working advantage for a time okay okay i mean that makes a lot of sense yeah i mean sometimes the decisions just are that practical Mm -hmm. so yeah but it also speaks to the fact that the davises themselves were in motion for quite i mean just that whole spring of 1861 they you know he was in washington dc you know part of the year because he was a united states senator but then of course they pulled out they decided to secede so they got to go home they got to wait this out and then they find out The uh, government is going to be established, and they decide that Montgomery, Alabama is going to be that place, so they relocate there. And then then a hot minute later, they got to change. So they're just like city hopping with their personal household, but not any of their things, not any of their furnishings or any of that. So when they get here, they're in that hotel until this thing gets figured out. So somewhere in there, and it's not really clear, there just were conversations that were going on between um, different people, but Crenshaw does seem to have been one of the people involved in conversations about where might they stay. Um, And then finally made the agreement with the city to uh, to sell the house to the city. Um, They said for $35,000, but also um, furnishings were to be a part of the deal. So ultimately it was 43,000 that it was sold for.
1: Wow. And so it was sold to the state and then the state based the city. The city. Yeah. The city. And then the city leased it out to the Davis family. To the Confederate government. Okay. So
2: just like, you know, so, uh, we try not to draw too many parallels, but just like in Washington DC, the Davises are tenants of a house that they don't own. And okay. they're not they don't own they don't have the lease on it either, right? Mm-hmm. You just get to move into the house that has been provided for this purpose.
1: And hopes that everything goes well so you can stay for a while. Yes, Because I mean, honestly, at that point, they probably could have had to leave at any moment.
2: Yeah, they don't know what's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think they're very much hopeful that it's only gonna last a hot minute, right? Um, If it is going, if if they're successful, you know, so many things going on through the Confederate mind at this point, which is, you know, is is this, this is probably gonna be quick, right? Because nobody really wants to go to war, we'll have a couple of, you know, key battles and we'll just sort of work this out. Mm -hmm. And then we'll just we'll either settle in here, or we'll decide, you know, where our, how our nation is actually going to be set up and where things are going to be and all that.
1: That was a mistake made on both sides. It seems like yeah. we talking with Chris yesterday and talking with you today. It seems yeah. like both sides were kind of like, "Oh, this will be over in no time," and they were very wrong.
2: They were so wrong. Yeah. So wrong.
1: So that, when it was the Davis House, I mean, did they, did they just call it the Davis House? Or what was its name then? <laughs> no,
2: you know, so again, they're just they're moving in. Um, this, is a, this, is a, uh, this is a practical move. And uh, as far as we can tell, Mrs. Davis called it, you know, the Gray House. Um, most people just referred to it either simply as the President's House or uh, some people said the Crenshaw House because they knew it as that. And people who've been here longer would call it the Broken House because okay. they knew it, even, you know, from those days. So, yeah, it kind of just depended, I think, where you lived and, and what
1: your experience with it was. And what was daily life for that family during that time period there? I mean, I'm assuming it was mm-hmm. just a lot, a lot of meetings. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, sure. So, you have to think about it as one as similar to the White House on the one hand and not the same because it's not nearly as big in order to accommodate official business to the same degree. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, I like to, it's fun when we talk about the house as we're going through it, is to say, all right, it starts off as a two-story house, and then it adds a third floor to it. By the time it's got the third floor on it, it's 9,700 square feet. Seems like a great big house. Mm -hmm. Okay, but if you take the third floor back off of it, it was like a 6,000 square foot, two-bedroom condo. Okay. Right, so it's a very wealthy person's, you know, townhouse, basically. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, with the third floor on it, it becomes the residence of the presidential family of the Confederate States of America, and there are two functions for that house. One is social, and that's the politics of society, right? that they, that Mrs. Davis is effectively in charge of. Mm -hmm. And then Davis lives there and then, but it's also that they're in the middle of a war. So he is going to be holding meetings and aides and people are gonna be coming in and out. So there's a lot that's sort of official and unofficial or maybe formal and informal that is going to take place in that house throughout the time that they're there. But Davis does have a formal office. There is actually a building where he has his presidential office and where his, you know, administration uh, sets up shop, and that's in the Custom House building that was directly downhill from the Capitol building on Bank Street. Okay. So, you know, the idea is is that he's going to go to work there every day, mm-hmm. right? But again, it's wartime, and you know, this is a wholly new adventure that they're on, and so yeah, the house is going to end up involved.
1: And it seems like, especially in that era, it is extraordinarily important to put your personal life along with your political life, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, to be seen as a prominent political figure, you needed to invite these people to your home right. and create these very personal connections that's and right. memories of these people yeah. to, to maintain that, and that powerful that's prestige. Right. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, that's not something you really see anymore. I don't think not in private
2: homes exactly to the same
1: degree. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, just kind of just kind of a different mindset because Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to picture myself in this situation. Where I'm having to invite my boss over to my house all Mm -hmm. the time to maintain Mm -hmm. good, and I don't want to do that. I love my boss. I don't want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to deal with like having to to create the big fancy dinners and all the work that I'm sure that they had to do. Yeah, yeah.
2: I think about my grandmother's generation. It was the same thing. They went to company picnics and they had, you know, sort of obliged to to create these social dynamics where Mm -hmm. you could see that you ran your home properly and that. To that, to the to the nth degree of you know near intimacy that you represented the values of the institution. Yes.
1: Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and they even had you know mm-hmm. specific rooms where this is the room where the public sees, and then mm-hmm. we have our stuff in the back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm like, nobody sees anything up by it. I just keep that's my door right. shut. That's
0: right. That's <laughs> right.
2: And so there's the other responsibility too, which is that it isn't always about inviting. Now, certainly at the big parties, you send out the invitations, and that's that's very intentional and specific, and it means something to each person you know at every stage of their career however there's also the other part that we don't do anymore and that is that it was expected that you dropped by you paid visits you paid calls so i don't know that they necessarily had that responsibility because they're at the highest level but everyone around them like when they moved into the neighborhood it was expected that everyone in the neighborhood would come by for a visit oh my and god i think guys not like that anymore <laughs> And if you weren't home when they d- dropped by, then they would leave a calling card, okay. right? And so when you get to, uh, to go through the house, you, one of the things you'll see in the entrance hall is an example of a calling card okay. uh, sitting on a little tray on a little table in the entrance hall. So
1: a, that's probably why it's called a calling card because they is. came calling for you and that's they missed right. you. Yeah, Look right. at that. We're yeah. learning all kinds of new things today. <laughs> so who all lived in the Davis house? So with the Davises moving in in 1861,
2: you've got two adults, he's in his 50s, she's in her 30s, and they have three children to start off with. Um, and they had they had six children altogether. They lost one before they got here, so they arrived with three children and she was pregnant. So by the end of 61, you'd have a 6-year-old, a 4-year-old, a 2-year-old and a baby. Okay. Uh, so already a crowd Definitely. in a way, right? Um, Personal servants. So the two people that we know about for them, uh, Betsy was her lady's maid and a man named James James Pemberton was his manservant. And they were enslaved people who we believe were owned and probably raised, possibly even born, uh, on the Davis Plantation in Mississippi. So had been a part of their lives from their childhoods Mm -hmm. at least. Um, Obviously Mrs. Davis is... She is the second Mrs. Davis, and so she comes along a little bit later, but by this time, it's you know they're 10 years in. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, then you add on the 10, 15, up to 15 or so more people um, who were part of the servant staff. And we know that the vast majority of them were enslaved people, and most of them uh, were hired from local owners and basically traveling wealthy people, traveling slaveholders and not moving their entire households with them. So, you know, they show up in a place and a very common practice would be to lease people for the duration of the time that you're gonna be there. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was definitely the practice in this household. Um, and then we know that there are two, uh, uh, two Irish immigrant women on staff, one is the housekeeper, her name is Mary Amelia, and the other is a young woman named Catherine who serves as a nursemaid uh, to the children for at least, I think, we think it's at least two years because we're not sure when she starts. The first mention of her shows up in 1862 and and she seems to be there the rest of that time. Um, And then we've got one free black man employed there uh, uh, later uh, as Davis's manservant driver and sort of all around guy. Um, and then a German man named Edward Egling, who actually owned a florist shop on Broad Street, so obviously has the wealthy as his clients. I mean, yes, right. And he uh, is a kind of facilities manager, groundskeeper for Crenshaw, and then secures the contract to do it for the Davises as well. So we know he's there for about two years until some, through 1862, I think. Okay. So yeah, and then you know there are comings and goings. Uh, in that period, but so we just, you know, we know that when you think about the house and the family and their sort of immediate servant staff, that means in the house is, they're going to be, you know, anywhere from eight to ten people that are just sort of key to the staff, and then you've got Davis's personal secretary living there. Other staff are sort of cycling through as well, so that's the political staff. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, then guests, house guests in the house. So Mrs. Davis's mother and sister are there quite a bit. Other friends will come and stay and family members will come and stay.
1: Would you say that the attitude of their house during that time is similar to how we feel about our White House now. I mean, was it like a huge point of patriotism looking into this, this big White House on the hill? Right, right, that right. It was like the center of all that. Was it kind of yeah. similar to how I think, we feel now? I think
2: it I think it was. I think it grew to you know to be that. And I think certainly as the media, uh, you know, was writing about it and sort of and especially Richmond media and Southern media writing about it, then they would be talking about it in these these kinds of you know patriotic reverential terms for mm-hmm. sure. Um, I think in the in the northern newspapers we see it referred to primarily as the Confederate president's house. Okay, you know, just being descriptive as mm-hmm. opposed to in any way reverential. And it is interesting, though, that you know, memory building in the years after the war, um, and then into the 20th century, when I think it's actually even more heightened than it was in the in, in the aftermath of the war. is is the way in which we have guests who will sometimes come through and wonder why it doesn't occupy the same space, the same patriotic, reverential space in the landscape as the White House.
1: Interesting.
2: You know, it's really hard to sort of get people to come back to the fact that the Confederate experiment lasted four years, period. That was it.
1: (laughs) April 18th, it it
2: was not a thing. Except that obviously, it was a thing.
1: I mean, it did right. cause huge changes yeah. to the United States government and how we see it today. Right. Um, but it, yeah. it, it yeah. is different. Yeah. yeah.
2: And to, you know, they they come and they look at the house and they're like, how could you let, you know, VCU build all around this? I mean, you would think that it would be, there's something about it. It's like sacrosanct. Like we're not allowed, you know, nobody should be allowed to touch this. and. You know, and oh, it's because of recent, uh, you know, recent upheavals. Well, we know it's politically correct now, so you're just letting bad things happen to the house. And it's like, well, okay. So we won't even get into the fact that any decision that you see playing out in the house at this moment was probably made 15 years ago. That you stuff know. takes
1: so much time. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think that people also who might not be a part of that world don't have any idea, really, like how difficult preservation, conservation, yeah. especially in a politically charged. Topic. I mean, and and there's just, you know, unfortunately, there's not enough money to go around a lot of times to preserve everything in the way that you would like it to. So you just really have to do the best that you 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 can do.
2: Yeah, and and the truth is, too, is that that house, as a museum institution, you know, one of the things we stress as we give tours of that house, of course, is its entire lifespan from 1818 right on up to the present.
1: So it did have more of an important history, not just on that four years, right? Before and after. Before
2: and after, yeah, yeah. Now, Intriguingly, of course, it it manages to stay locked into the Southern narrative Mm -hmm. as well in terms Mm -hmm. of its purposes, you know, over that whole time. But in the 20th century, it it corresponds to, or the thinking about it and the practical ability to um, have it meet whatever role we want it to meet has been affected by the evolution of the historic preservation movement, right? In its beginning years, the only thing that was important to the ladies of the Confederate Memorial Literary Society was that it not be torn down and that they could then clean it up and present it to the world as this fabulous, you know, icon of the Confederacy. But other than that, its authenticity didn't matter that much. They weren't trying to restore it the way that we have as a museum. Mm -hmm. They weren't trying to do that. They weren't trying to make it be that house again. It was enough to have it and, and to present it to the world as the white house of the confederacy you know in Mm -hmm. the 20th century to make sure people remembered it in that particular way so it, it it only needed to be a snapshot in that way over the course of the 20th century as it's collecting objects and storing actual artifacts and then suddenly there are real museum professionals that evolve over that period and they're looking at this going oh my god We've got to get these things out of this building because it was never designed for this, Mm -hmm. right? So, for storage and care, (laughs) yes, right, all of that. So, and then so then that means is there support, right? So they've created this memory uh, about this place and about this history and about this narrative. Is there actual financial fiscal support Mm -hmm. to do that to support that narrative? And for a time there was and then after a while there wasn't, mm-hmm. right? And so that has also contributed to its change uh, over time.
1: So the House during that four years, we kind of know about that, but then what what hands did it fall into after this Confederacy yeah, didn't yeah. thing didn't work out? That's right, that's right. So April 1865, the Davises leave, the Confederacy pulls out of Richmond, the United States Army arrives and the officers move into the building. I can't believe they didn't burn the building down, honestly, because that seems to be be a trend a lot of times in certain historical places where you go there and they're like, oh, they lost, so the winners came in and burned it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it it
2: goes back again to the importance of Richmond. Richmond is an important place. And to this point, Richmond has except for... Well, so there was a fire. So maybe that was just, you know this would have been an unnecessary exclamation point, a little overkill, right? Because when the Confederates pulled out, they had a plan in place to destroy certain warehouses. So as they pulled out overnight on April 2nd, these buildings went up, but they caught and the fire became a, a conflagration that consumed 80 blocks of the city. Oh
1: my word. And it went
2: from 16th Street to about 4th Street. It went from the river's edge. So everything that was along the river and the canal and the turning basins, which means all warehouses, factories, banks, storage, all of those buildings that had, that were really the heart of the economic lifeblood of
1: the city, it all burned up. So this was after the Confederacy lost, when they were leaving, they burned these places yes, to stop exactly. the Union exactly, so they hadn't from... lost yet, they just had been chased
2: out of Richmond. I see, okay, it's not over I was yet, a little confused really. on that timeline. Right, so you've got April 2nd, um, so, you, so the, the story is centered on Petersburg, in the, in the month or so, really the year before, but it, it's really all consolidating there. That's where the armies are meeting to, to finally, as it turns out, decide the fate of Richmond. Mm-hmm. So on the night of April 2nd, uh, the, the Davis family, meaning Mrs. Davis, the children, uh, and servants have left because they, they can see what's coming. Mm-hmm. So they're already sort of making their way south so the family has just left. Yeah, so the family has just left uh, on the 31st. And Davis is, is basically waiting to hear how the battles are going to go. Uh, he gets a message uh, late on April 2nd uh, from Lee saying, they've broken through, we're not gonna be able to keep them from getting to Richmond. So he's like, okay, fine, we put our plan into motion. They s- send out the word, they start blowing up buildings and he gathers up his men and everything oh, and they take the last train out. They head for Danville. And in Danville, they set up again, and they're expecting, and it's it's referred to as the last Confederate capital, I think. Okay. So they set up, but they're only there for like seven days, I think. So again, they're, they are not conceding this thing yet. They are hoping that they are actually going to make it to the coast um, and get a ship and head off to Europe and maybe with some Allied support continue to... They really would like to be an independent nation, of course, mm-hmm. and that's where Southern Ambitions, you know, comes into it. Is these aspirations that they have for independent nationhood didn't come about in, you know, the beginning of 1861. These are the culmination of ideas that they have been, you know, sort of hashing through and dreaming about and thinking might have to come to pass in order that the world, you know, go forward in the in the way that they think it ought to.
1: So what did that look like to them? What did it look like, their own nation separate mm-hmm. from the North? Mm-hmm. What 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 were they hoping would be the end result of the positive side for sure, them? Sure, sure. As far as they were concerned,
2: there are two things going on. They felt they believed um, sincerely and utterly in the economic system that they that they lived in, which is agricultural, agribusiness, um, and being sort of the breadbasket or the supply center for the industrial world that was developing. They didn't see that the industrial world was going to be necessarily a threat to them. They thought if things were set up properly that they would feed the industries of the world. So, in particular, uh, you know, Europe and England. Uh, and the North, United States, right? Mm-hmm. And so with that, of course, the only way that system works is if slavery is you know, is the infrastructure, is the labor infrastructure. So they are seeing themselves as, as an independent nation that is, is based on a, that slavery uh, economy, but also the racial hierarchy that that also supports. Right. And and they are looking at places like Haiti and saying, see, Haiti is completely chaotic. And if we could impose our system on them, then it would all be in order again. The the races would live according to a structure that would bring peace and, and progress. And, and progress, exactly. So they are seeing themselves literally as as kind of an avant garde mm-hmm. you know of mm-hmm. civilization. I mean, they literally have embedded themselves in this idea that that they have the bead on it that was intended by, you know, the founding fathers, right? You know, and that's the 40,000-foot view. I'm sure that there were a lot of different
1: intricacies that were going on into it, but the overarching theme was this. Yeah, was this,
2: right. How do you get men on the ground to fight for that 40,000-foot view? You go to the ideals of the American Revolution, you go to protecting home and your your family, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. But all of that other stuff in between, I think on the ground, a lot of people know that that's politicking, Mm -hmm. right? In many ways, you know, the perspective that I'm sort of presenting is the sort of standard um, historical perspective, which we're sort of talking from a kind of default everybody position, right? Mm -hmm. But if I center it in the experiences of black people at this time, right, is is that the world looks very different to them and has done, right, from the minute they got here. And so they're, as an, as an essentially enslaved population, but also with a fairly sizable free black population that isn't supposed to exist, very much in the same way when, um, that poor whites aren't really a factor, right? So if you think about the elite world and the way that the society is structured to support their their life, their society, their civilization, the people who who don't factor into this are free blacks and poor whites. They're both a pain because obviously both of those groups have aspirations and yet we have a hierarchical structure that needs them to stay that down. needs them to stay down.
1: Or or they will come down themselves.
2: Exactly. Right. So people you know, people are aware of this to varying degrees. Mm -hmm. care about this to varying degrees, but nonetheless it's all part of the of the scene, right? Exactly. Yeah, so in in, and so in even in talking about this in this way sort of in the larger sense, the house, the Confederate president's house, is a microcosm of of all of these perspectives coexisting at the same time.
1: Mm -hmm. So the Davis family leaves the White House, they come, they stay a week, in Danville Danville, and mm-hmm. then what happens to them after that mm-hmm. so so again um,
2: that's Davis and his sort of political military entourage they go to Danville Mrs. Davis has headed towards um, North Carolina South Carolina because the goal is that they will meet up in Georgia somewhere there and then proceed on to the coast where they hope to get okay. on a boat mm-hmm. instead they're captured in Georgia so the US is in hot pursuit which is why they're only in Danville for seven days because mm-hmm. they're coming and so they keep going, and then, uh, so it's I think it's May 10th, 1865, in just outside of a town called Irwinville, Georgia, that they're captured, and it's actually a pretty large group of people, so Mrs. Davis, the children, and some servants is one thing, but it's also her sister um, and other pe- family members and stuff, so they're mm-hmm. kind of a crowd of people, and she has some trouble as they're moving through the south because there are times when there's they have either run out of money or um, they don't have friends, in a particular area, and so they discovered that they weren't as popular as they thought they might have been.
1: I mean, if, uh, you're, not, if you're not if you're in the middle of the uh, rich area of the industrial part of town. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Shockingly, not everyone likes you. That's right. Yeah. And uh, Davis
2: himself was not necessarily a popular president either. The reverence for him develops after the war. Mm. But during the war, he's been a very controversial, cranky Apparently, like to fight duels. I mean, he's he's a bit of a
3: guy, interesting I mean, or whatever you want to
2: call him. Yeah, he's an interesting character for sure. And so they just, you know, they're not they're not getting the help is not as friendly all the time as they sort of hope. It was something I noted when I was reading it. That's, but anyway, they were captured, um, and various people peeled off uh, as they went, uh, including an enslaved man who had served as a butler for a time. Uh, towards the end there. He was, he was also a character, but he, he peeled off. Um, but there were people who were with them. So as a group, they were uh, captured, brought back to Fort Monroe, uh, and Davis was incarcerated there in a cell for eight months and then afterwards moved into an apartment. Uh, so, kind of a house arrest there okay, and then uh, Mrs. Davis packed up the kids, she sent them to Canada, Montreal, Canada, with um a servant uh, who had been enslaved and was of course now free, technically, his name was Robert Brown, um, and a nephew of Davis is a guy named Joseph Davis Jr. I think anyway, they um took the kids there, and it, the idea was that they didn 't know what was going to happen, so let 's just get them out of the way and safe and so um you know, there's lots of details to it, but mm-hmm. in the in the end, Davis uh, is freed on bond in 1867 and then released in 1869. Um, he was going to be charged with treason, and there were two juries that were set up initially to in anticipation of that trial. And interestingly, the first uh, jury, both of them were mixed race, and but this was the first instance of a federal jury being established that was actually mixed race. Wow. So up until
1: then, they've been all white. I'm sure he was not exactly happy about that. Probably not. <laughs> so the main part of his legacy, from what I understand now, is really his time at the Confederate White House. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's great that you guys still have that space. Like you say, we can mm-hmm. go in and do tours in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a few particular items that are in there that we really wanted to focus the stories <laughs> I hope on. You did didn't we? <laughs> and uh, so, why don't you go ahead and take away with? I know that we have the Gasolier. Yeah. Um, I'm is, I'm hoping that that's just a gaslit chandelier. Is that why it's called that's, a gasolier? I think that's pretty much it. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So, tell us a little bit about this a gasolier <laughs> in the White House, Confederate House, the Davis yes. House, the, the everything house. That house on Clay Street. Yes. <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah. The House Museum on Clay Street has this, uh, yeah. So, the gasoliers. Um, so, I've been giving these tours now for four years in the house, and it's funny how different items will sort of for whatever reason stand out for you, for, to, to as vehicles for telling certain kinds of stories, mm-hmm. right? So I, I realized that the gasoliers, I found them really interesting after I realized how much work it took to operate them. So here's Lewis Crenshaw, fabulously wealthy merchant there. He, he and his partner are responsible for a deal that brought coffee in from Brazil and they shipped flour uh, to Brazil, right? So coffee in Virginia. It was for the elite, definitely. Thank you, right? <laughs> And so, um, so he's making money, um, whatever decision goes into him wanting to buy this particular house, turn it into a showpiece, they, they don't hold back at all. They, they not only add that third floor, they completely renovate the inside of the house, all of the furnishings, all of the wall coverings, the, all of the fixtures. They tap it into a coal gas plant that was established apparently um, near this neighborhood. So he's modernizing the house. So suddenly everything instead of just being, you know, fire and coal pieces is now coal gas fire. So the fireplaces are fueled that way and these fixtures are, are, fired at that, are fueled that way. And it's, so there are 15 of these in the house. Each one of these devices has anywhere from two to six
1: lamps. I mean, and they look really grandiose. They look. They are.
2: Yes, they are quite. They really are quite something. Um, This is a little spreadsheet that I put together a couple weeks ago because I wanted to get clear on the motifs for each one.
1: Oh my goodness! Um,
2: So, and this so you've got a so this identifies where they are. This tells you how many lamps were in each fixture, and this gives you an idea of whatever particular decoration, um, you know, was on the on the fixture. So, you know, one Sir of the... Sir Walter Scott? Sir Walter Scott, yes, he is there. He's on the second floor.
1: There's, think, a, there's even a helmeted yeah. lion on the first, this is spinning. Yes. Yeah, So I mean, they were grandiose.
2: They're pretty, they're pretty fancy, yes. And so within the fanciness of these things, really, really ornate, high Victorian, you know, decor, design, is uh, the function, right? So they, they are plumbed through the center, so the gas is coming through a pipe that's coming straight down from the ceiling and then it is piped into each lamp individually. So for every, so we'll talk about a six fixture lamp because that's the biggest one. So you have what actually amounts to six individual lamps that have to be lit by a match and then have to be snuffed out each day if you're going to use them every day. So since they put that many of them in there, it seems that this household wanted this to be their standard lighting, right? So. So whoever's in charge is going to have to get up on a ladder and they're going to have um, it's there's an instrument that I've seen I don't know if everyone always used it but in a household like this I'm going to assume that they did it's kind of a long um, wand like thing and on at the top it's going to have sort of a two headed device and one of them is going to um, allow you to light the mat like a match kind of thing. Oh, okay and then the other side of it's going to be a little sort of bell-shaped thing that snuffs snuffer. out yeah the snuffer exactly so In the morning or in the evening, whenever these things get lit, that person is going to come in, they're going to get on a ladder, and they are going to turn on the gas gently, and they are going to light it. So it's probably a flint of some kind, right? So they're going to light it, then they got to adjust the gas so that it's not going to blow out if somebody opens a door or whatever. And um, they will have already made sure that the globe that's around it is clean, right, as well. So they're going to do that six times.
1: Just for one light. Just for one Instead light. Instead of flipping on one light switch. Thank you. Right?
2: <laughs> Visions to come. And I'm sure that vision danced through all the circumstances, Would have blown heads, their right? minds. <laughs> so, 14 devices later, somebody has lit somewhere between 50 and 60 individual lamps wow. to turn them on. Turning them off, same thing. you got to go out and you got to go snuff it. And you have to make sure, of course, that you snuff the flame and then turn off the gas. Because you don't turn off the gas while the flame is lit because you suck flame into the pipe so unless you want a house blown up instantly you have gotta make sure that you do this properly and then you clean the globes and then probably there's some cleaning of the ceiling that's going to go on you know at the same time and again these things are high in the room as well so there's a ladder involved maybe there's two people involved so here is this incredibly elegant extravagant device which takes a lot of people to keep it functioning. Yeah. So these are indicators, you know, again of status, of wealth. It's indication that because of that wealth and because of, you know, these things you need you need a lot of people to maintain your stuff. So, I don't know how many servants the Crenshaws had. They don't tell us. But you 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 begin to see from a, a from one fixture that there must be a lot of people. So it takes a lot, even if they're just a couple, now I happen to know they had eight kids, but two or three owners of the house before them don't seem to have had very many children and yet they're also living in this house and having to make it run. So it takes a lot of slaves
1: to make this lifestyle work. Because that is only one tiny piece of everything that has to be done in a house like that. That is one tiny thing.
2: Tiny thing, and everything takes a lot, right? So this has nothing to do with the cooking staff, It has nothing to do with the people who might actually be kind of medical oriented, like is is there somebody on staff who looks after their health? Right. Mm-hmm. I know there's a doctor probably in the neighborhood, but they don't all actually know how to do anything except, you know, come and, you know, pat you Ble- on the hand. Or bleed you. Or bleed you. <laughs> <right>? you
3: Profusely.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Nonetheless, they have ideas about medications, but all those medications have to be made from scratch. Right. So there is a garden on the property too, and they're growing food. They're probably growing medicinal herbs. Who knows? But anyway, just to say everything takes everybody, you know, to do it. And so looking at this gasolier, which, you know, people come in and go, oh, it's so beautiful and everything is so pretty. And they start imagining, you know, creating your bed and oh, breakfast I could live with like the this. furnishings. Right, I could live like this. And so every now and then I'll go, so, you know, all of us here, we're going through this museum. That's kind of cool. But back in the day, probably none of us would get in through the back door. Exactly. You know, this is, you know, this we're going through a museum. It's very quiet here. Imagine four children and 12 people and all the people coming in and out of this house. This is a noisy there's probably a bit of grunginess to the edges of this place as well because how do you keep up with all of that, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I really, I like for the devices and the stories that I tell in the house, and and others do as well, is to really give people a sense of what it meant to be there. Mm -hmm. And yes, we can, you know, if you want to imagine yourself in the role of the president of the Confederacy and the first lady, well, you know, you can imagine your politics um, if you want to, but you can also just imagine what it means to be a super wealthy person living in these circumstances and how does that play out. But then imagine you, in your station in life, right here, right now, and how would you have actually intersected? How do you intersect with a house like this now? As soon as somebody says, oh, yeah, I'd buy a mansion, I'm like, I do not want to spend my life or designate other people's lives looking after a house.
1: A room that never gets used. (laughs) I want a cottage, you know, on the beach. Exactly. (laughs) I do. Well, that's a really good aspect to look at it, too, because that is one of the things when you go to a museum... It is, it is really easy to walk around and see all the really cool things and, and be like, oh, wow, this is amazing, mm-hmm. but to really put yourself in the place and time of that particular artifact. I mean, it's, it's a lot more powerful when you look at it that way. Yeah,
3: yeah, it
2: really is. It's, you know, being able to put your feet on the actual place, being able to hold
1: the actual object. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, it really does. Do you guys ever turn them on now? Are they gas now the gas, still?
2: No, they all got converted to electricity. Ah, thank so. God. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you don't have the uh, the, no, the no, museum no, no, volunteers no, no, up there every morning. No, <laughs> thinking no. why did I sign up for that? That's
2: right. That's right. And you know, for all that, even the the ladies of the Confederate Memorial Literary Society, you know, wanted this to be a museum, and 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 they are funded by wealthy people, as all sort of nonprofits are, as all ventures like this are. Um, there's. Being cash poor is also a part of the nonprofit world, right? So mm-hmm. you can have things that look really amazing, but behind the scenes, you know, <laughs> things are crumbling.
1: You're finagling everything. Yeah,
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and you depend on volunteers. You depend on you know people who are enthusiasts
3: and mm-hmm. you know all that kind of stuff. So yeah.
1: So do you do you have another item that you have? I couldn't remember from our yeah. email. Yeah. So there was a map. The map, that's right. We
2: did yeah, mention the map I earlier. I did mention the map. And then I was all over the place. I was like, wait, I should talk about the, the dresser, because then we could talk about James Jones, who was the free black man who was Davis's manservant, right? So there, I mean, there's several objects that I can talk about. The map was my first favorite object in the house. And as it turns out, it was not in the house during the war. So it was a curator's choice uh, to put it in the um, room that Davis chose to use as his home office. When we go in there, and, and as you walk through the house, one of the things that you don't know as a visitor, unless somebody tells you, is that you know this house was curated the restoration had to be managed, right? So what is what is each room gonna represent? What stories are, you know, are the things in those rooms going to tell? Even as the first goal was to get back as many original things into those spaces so that you could see the intention, how these mm-hmm. rooms were intended to be used. But at the same time, we have, you know, we don't necessarily get everything back and there is a way in which you want uh, each room to sort of lead you through a story. Yes. Right, so when we get to Davis's office. Now his office, uh, it's a home office, just like we all have home offices and everybody can relate now since we've been, you know, in lockdown, right? We we made those rooms and you make those rooms out of what is there. So in this house, the second floor was comprised of a bedroom, a nursery and a sitting room. And the sitting room in the middle of those two bedrooms is where Davis decides to set up his home office. Mm -hmm. So there's clearly an idea that this is one, it's on the second floor of the house. That's the private level of the house. This is where the bedrooms are. So this is not where, you know, aides and people are coming and going. So this is the place where he can work at night, you know, or if he's not going into the main office downtown, um, he can work in this place. His personal secretary lives in the building, and so he can visit him there. They can work together in this room. People talked about how there was always clouds of smoke, you know, in that room because they both smoked like crazy. But the other thing is that here is a room where we can center talking about davis and who he was as a political person as a military person um, and to a degree as a personal you know individual so in here we focus on him as president and as a military person because for himself as an individual his sort of heart was in his military origins right he went to west point he didn't graduate very high in his class, I think bottom third, um, and then he works his way up and um, and then ends up uh, under the command of Zachary Taylor, who would later go on to be president, so high level already because, you know, he's connected like that. And then when he does go into the military, uh, the next time it's uh, to take a command during the Mexican-American War, and eventually he's going to rise and be appointed Secretary of War under President Franklin Pierce. So. This is the center of his sort of being.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, The politics comes along with it, right? Especially after he marries his second wife and he's moved along he's a successful cotton planter, essentially inherited that because he's the youngest of a family of 11 that has 5,000 acres. His eldest brother is the patriarch of the family. They cross the, the century divide. His eldest brother was born in the 18th century. He was born at the beginning of the 19th mm-hmm. century. So they are part of you know, that sort of the new nation period. Yeah. right? So are, in their household you know, are people uh, coming and going and, and talking about their aspirations for this place and how to grow it and how to grow them and all that. So what it ultimately means politically is that he is centered in his uh, world, his cotton planter, culture um and the ideas that sustain that and then he has the military experience to see how that you know plays out in decisions that are made on the field and so all of those are the things that contribute to him being selected as the provisional president right and there's more to it i'm sure but in any event this room is meant to sort of embody that about him and so in that room there are very few things that actually were there at the time but the card table that was his desk is there. There's a bookcase that he selected and ordered, but wasn't, didn't arrive before they had to leave the house. But it came into the house as an artifact later to the museum. Um, and then there is the hanging of a representation of his commission as second lieutenant. So his first you know, sort of officer mm-hmm. commission as a young man. So that's there. And then there's this map. So here is this guy who's the first president of the Confederate States of America, it's brandy new, they're in the middle of a war they weren't expecting would last this long, he's up at night, he's got health issues, so here's a place where he can, at night or whenever it is that he feels like, he can work here and be surrounded by the things that represent who he is he's gonna have a map. If he's a military man, he's gotta know where everything is. So here's a map. So the curators selected an 1853 map. It was made by a guy named Jacob Monk. And Jacob Monk's company was operated out of Baltimore and his maps were very, very popular in that period, in the 1850s. Um, I pulled some information from the, a rare maps website that talks about the fact that um, his was were perhaps the single most popular series of large format maps of North America published in the 1850s. First issued in 1852, the map was updated several times a year for most of the decade and the number of surviving examples pays testament to the fact that it was far and away the most commercially successful map of the United States published in the decade before the Civil War. So even if we don't know that he had one of these particular maps there, it's likely he encountered it for sure, especially in DC. So here is a great representation um, in this map of the state of the United States in 1853. And of course, those territorial shifts that are being fought over and contested, right, um, are represented in this map. There's no border between us and what we think of as Canada, you know. The the Oregon Territory is a gigantic territory, right? Um, California is, is a state, and we tend to not even think about it in the Civil War, and yet their crazy governor decided to try and secede before the other states seceded from the Union, right? So, I mean, there's all this stuff that's going on, and I had one guest who was from Norway, And on that particular day, there was nobody else on the tour, and we are in that room and looking at the map, and there's a little inset that actually has a map of the world so that you can make reference to these other places. And so he proceeded to have a conversation with me about what was happening in Norway, Sweden, and Denmark during the American Civil War because of their own struggles, right? And their relationship to England, which was making decisions about what it was going to do based on what was happening, the progress that was being made in the American Civil War and whether or not they were going to lean towards supporting the Confederacy, which would be pretty radical, or if they were gonna maintain, you know, their political ties to the United States, Mm -hmm. which has its own history to totally unpack, right? So, I mean, you know, this map is just this place where you can have a conversation with anybody and everybody looks at the map and looks for their hometown, right, or their home state and it's like, ooh, look, that thing, it's not there or look, it was over here then. or So people connect to it in a way that's really, really compelling and I found that, you know, we've had to really sort of move people quickly through that room because we could stay there for a long time talking about um, the implications of the Civil War in relation to people's, Home places, right? Um, and so that map for me also is the opportunity to then, as a museum, sure. tie to the Southern Ambitions exhibit, right? Because then we can say, hey, so look, you see that spot on the map there? Look at the way West Virginia is not, you know, still a part of Virginia at this point. Let's go to the Southern Ambitions and figure out, you know, what was the decision that was at play, you know, when the, when mm-hmm. when the split happened, or you know, look at the access from here to uh, the Chesapeake Bay at a given point in time in relation to a particular battle, you know, and we can look at the shipbuilding that was going on and then we can go to Southern Ambitions and we can see where, you know, um, was it Ecuador, Paraguay, and um, what's the other one? Uruguay were involved in this, uh, oh, Brazil, was involved in this massive civil war or, you know, in, in that continent at the same time and everybody's paying attention to what's going on because they are gonna make decisions based on what's going on in this other place. And yet we think that the American Civil War was simply our, our little you know internal struggle.
1: Well, it's a great example of looking at how interconnected all the different countries, even different states, different cultures, and it's really easy, I think, to, to kind of imagine what you're doing right now is just affecting what your country is doing right now. But I would, I would even argue, particularly in the United States case, mm-hmm. I mean, what happens here affects, I mean, but it's the same. What happens mm-hmm. maybe over in Europe, that affects yes. a lot of different places. What mm-hmm. happens, what even happens in Haiti. I mean, yep. so. We're so much more interconnected than people really realize in the decision-making yeah. processes, the government processes. I mean, all of right. it is way big, big picture, but you have to look at it that way. And it can be really easy to zone in on what's going on in just one place. Yeah. But that's a great example of, mm-hmm. you know, the sky being like, oh, let me tell you what was happening in my neck of the woods while this was going on that's and right. how it's connected. That's, that's right. It's really cool.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's a, you know, it's like it, for a moment, it is really important to sort of take ourselves out of what we think we understand and, and just stand somewhere else for a minute and just understand what that experience is like. and it you know it helps you understand why people respond differently to things. I have been very much in, intrigued by um, how people from other countries come here to this museum because I'm like, why are you interested in our civil war? Well, because it had something to do with their history as well mm-hmm. you know or the ideas that are battled around you know in these in, in that struggle. And that, and, you know, that sort of gets to the, the other deeper issues about what the American Civil War was about. Is that other countries see different aspects of their own internal struggles as battling through the same ideas?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be completely represented. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna cheat a little bit. That's all right. We're gonna talk about a third item. <gasps> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> but we're doing it. We're going in. Let's let's make it happen. All right. So the other item that it
2: occurred to me to talk about was uh, one that would get me to uh, somebody's story in particular, and that was um, the Davises, when they move into this house, uh, have personal servants, and as I mentioned, two of them, uh, the the first two that they arrived with, Betsy and her husband, Jim Pemberton. So even when we say that, we could unpack the idea of what does it mean to be married if you're enslaved when there's no actual official recognition of that. So that means it's a private recognition in the household of the enslaved community itself but also the owner is going to in that instance apparently recognize that this is a couple and so because he can unrecognize that just as quickly all right so here we have betsy and james pemberton they leave the house they escape in january of 1864 and two weeks later a butler also escapes his name was henry mosley we um, talk about that because it's an indication that this house president's house is not immune to all the dynamics that are at play at this moment in the Civil War. And so it's a year after the Emancipation Proclamation. So you've got waves of self-emancipation. So these people are probably in part inspired by that. They and probably have more information than a lot of other people about what opportunities could present themselves. So, you know, they, they bide their time, they figure out when the time is right. And so January 1864, out they go. Sometime after this, um, Mrs. Davis was in um, North Carolina on vacation, so I guess it was the summer of 64, and in that period she um, had to hire a driver, and so she hired a free black man whose name was James Jones. And Mr. Jones uh, was a bricklayer and a driver and had also had experience as a manservant, right? So he was, you know, again, all-around guy. He, mm-hmm. he can do a lot of stuff. And being free, that would be very important because being free only meant that you weren't enslaved. It didn't mean that anything else was guaranteed to you. So most free people lived in pretty abject poverty. Um, and, and we're, you know, we're struggling to find those ways. We tend to hear about free black people who were successful, right? And so we tend to think, ah, so once they get free, all opportunities are there for them. And that's not really true, so. But here is a man who is making it work as well as he can, and he gets hired by the Davises. They like him well enough that they invite him to come to Richmond and continue to be employed. Uh, by them, and so he does come to Richmond, and we know that he was paid twenty-seven dollars a month, and he, uh, which is roughly twice and then somewhat a soldier would get a month uh, enlisting in the Confederate Army, right, eleven dollars a month. They really liked him. They liked him. And clearly it pays to work for the president's household, right? So there's that. If it pays. If it pays, right. (laughs) (laughs) There. So... Oh, there it is. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's it, right? Because he's the only free black person that we know of that was employed in that household. So every other black person that he would have worked alongside of was an enslaved person. Now, this is a dynamic that's going to be more familiar to them than it is to us. We're just not accustomed to hearing about that. But in that time period, we are, uh, you know, we see the full range, and that's one of the things that the house also articulates, and I didn't even start with the artifact. So the artifact that I was going to start with was the dresser in the bedroom, right? When I take people on a tour of the house, then we uh, will actually eventually end up in the master bedroom and everybody always wants to know what's the original object, what thing that's here now was here then. So in that room it turns out to be the bed, which is great because it's a big spectacular thing in the middle of the room, and then the dresser. And it turns out there are a few other things too, but the dresser is this very, very ornate uh, thing. This was all curvy and carved and, you know, it's very beautiful and it's got a marble top and it's got vases on it and things and so we it's like here, okay, this was here. Davis used this dresser. He got dressed in this room, and there is a wardrobe, an armoire that goes along with it. There is a sitting room, and that's where Mrs. Davis's stuff is, her dresser and wardrobe and stuff. But this dresser, here it is in the bedroom, goes along with the bed. It's an original thing. We know he used it. If he gets dressed in here, that means we know that there's a servant associated with it, right? Because these people have servants that help them get dressed, help them get undressed, help bathe them all of the stuff that we all do for ourselves now they had a person to do those things for them so he has a succession of people the main ones that we know about were Jim Pemberton who had been doing it for him all those years up until they leave in January 1864 and then sometime after that along comes James Jones and he's a free black man hired to do that and he does this and so he, he, so he comes there and he serves this, this role and, and as I was talking about, so here's James Jones serving this role. And of course the way that he has come, you know, to Richmond was what I was describing before, mm-hmm. right? How he was hired and comes to Richmond. After the war is over and we go through to Davis's, the end of Davis's life. And so when he died, he was in New Orleans and he was buried there. And of course his huge funeral. Thousands of people come and all that. And then um, a year later, there's a decision made to, to disinter him from there and move him to Richmond. Um, cities had vied, various cities had vied to be the last resting place of Jefferson Davis. Again, his his reputation, his memory, the reverence grows in the years after the war. So Richmond wins and uh, there's a plot at Hollywood Cemetery where he is going to be reinterred. Now apparently, Uh, James Jones, after the war had ended, he went back home. And so what's different for James Jones? James Jones was a free black man during slavery. But after the end of the, after the amendments, he was now a free black man in a free society, presumably, right? So now everyone else is also free. So suddenly he can be a citizen. Suddenly, this which he could not do during slavery is that he could actually register to vote and he could run for office. So he, he does that and he does run for office and I think he becomes a city alderman and he has a very, you know, a really good public service life uh, right on up through the 1880s when he is now an old man. And this is when Davis dies and is initially buried and then, and he, uh, so apparently James Jones wrote Mrs. Davis. and said he would like to come to Richmond and drive the carriage that carries the hearse from point A to point B. Um, I think he offered to do that at Davis's death originally, but was not able to make the trip. Um, And then he is able, I think, to come to Richmond. I have to really clarify that. But he makes the offer. So all newspaper accounts about him from that time forward, and this is, again, an example of how this is done in this period, We'll talk about James Jones as having been his devoted servant during the war and then having returned because of his devotion and his love for Jefferson Davis to drive his carriage. And that's his value to the story. We hear nothing about James Jones becoming a citizen who can run for office and succeed and represent his community and help pass legislation and make changes in his hometown. and you know, do all these things. He rises to prominence in his community. But that is never a part of the narrative that is told about him. It's only his existence as a servant.
1: In relation to? In
2: relation to Jefferson Davis. And then other than that, his life has no value. In the media, either, right? So if it's not associated with Davis, then what's the point? We don't need to talk mm-hmm. about him, because in fact, we're not really crazy about the fact that you know he can actually run for office and change laws and, and things like that. So we're not really going to talk about that. We just think it's really cool that he was so devoted to Davis, right?
1: Well, and I think, he, and I, this might be me reading a little bit too much into it, but even myself hearing that story, you know, here's a man who was a freedman. He came to work for men who was an enslaver. Mm-hmm. And so he worked side by side from those people who were enslaved individuals. Mm-hmm. And then after he was still escaped that—not escaped—I mean, he was free. But when he mm-hmm. left that, mm-hmm. he wanted to come back and still be a part of that situation. So I can almost imagine that being a big part of. Well, look, it wasn't that bad because oh, sure. because mm-hmm. this man mm-hmm. he he loved him so much, even though he he owned people. Sure, you know, yeah. as yeah. much as yeah. you can, he yeah. still came back because he was that loyal to this individual, so he can't have been that bad. Right. And that's kind of what I was, that's just what I was thinking of when I was hearing you recite sure, that story. And I'm sure. just like, I'm sure that that's one of the reasons why that story was so popular. That's right.
2: Yeah, that's exactly why. And it, it also means that we have to sort of examine what a lot of those words mean. Uh, as we look back on them. And again, why those words were chosen to describe him, right? So there are several stories about sort of ongoing relationships between formerly enslaved people and enslavers. And they happen for all kinds of reasons. You know, whether or not uh, someone actually, you know, they find a way to actually sort of connect in some way during that period. They also just know each other really well, right? They have had to be involved on incredibly intimate levels with people. And it's not a two-way relationship. So the whites are not demonstrating an actual interest in you know, the concerns, worries of you know, the servant of this, of this enslaved person, of the black person. They're barely doing it for Mary Amelia, I'm sure, right? Unless she raises it. But you know, the, the, the wealthy and the enslaver is, is not particularly interested, except to the degree that it affects their ability to work for them and, and give them what they need, right? So, even with somebody like James Jones, so whatever the dynamic is, they may have found a, a kind of mutual respect. I, I believe that, could ha- that happened, absolutely. Um, it, but at the same time, it, it doesn't mean that we should overextrapolate from that and start saying things like, you know, well, slavery wasn't that bad, right? Because that's just bananas, right? You know, all you have to do is occupy that position for about 15 minutes and, and, and go, well, okay, I won't say silly things like that anymore. No. But, yeah, it's a real problem, too, and it makes it difficult to sometimes to tell, um, to be able to have a really good discussion about the reality on the ground between two people. Mrs. Davis was known to have uh, had a decent relationship with the last woman who served as her lady's maid, a woman named Ellen Barnes, who was a an enslaved woman brought there on an annual contract, leased from a local owner. And the people commented that they seem to click, just like two personalities in a room, they seem to click. And so she makes her 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 lady's maid, that's kind of a big deal. And then the nursemaid to her children, you know, to the baby that's born shortly after that. Um, And then we know that later that uh, Mrs. Davis, um, partly because they're all at Fort Monroe, but she attends her wedding, um, and that there is communication between them after the war. Mm -hmm. So here are two people who clearly, you know, look like they're friends. You know, from, again, they're still clearly occupying their social spheres, and that's not going to change. But there is something there, right? Um, at the same time, Ellen Barnes is interviewed at the end of the war. Um, and once they get to Fort Monroe, um, a newspaper man is like, you know, appears as though you, you two seem to get along kind of well. If things were different, would you return to bonded service with Mrs. Davis? And she says to that reporter, no, thank you. I don't want to be a slave. I will not return to the South as a slave. Mrs. Davis was good to me, but I don't want to be a slave for all that." And that's literally what she said. What clarity of thinking, right? So we know people were clear on, on every aspect of the life that they had to live with enslavers, you know, and with, and, and, and once they could leave them behind. Um, because at the you know because at the end of the day you end up being you know three people in a room, right and how 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 do we make that work? Mm-hmm. You know the museum is a place to be able to come back to because as you can see, even from this conversation, we've talked about three objects at this point. Um, and you know we've gone in many, many, many directions, and you can't absorb all of that and what it actually means for you. So you can come back and you can check it out again, and go, ah, today
1: it's making me think about this. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we talked about three atoms, and you have thousands. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I will say that there was a shining moment where you actually said it was a curator's choice, and I was just like, because <gasps> that's oh, the name my God, of my podcast. <laughs> It was like yes <laughs> so you can bet that that's definitely gonna be a huge part in there
2: <laughs> oh good for me <laughs>
1: <laughs> well yeah. thank you so much and yeah. i've really enjoyed talking with you Great. and and learning a little bit more about this place and the items and the stories it was a lot of fun good yeah and it was really good stimulating conversation yeah, so yeah, yeah i appreciate you yeah you bet